Would you join me in prayer? How humbling it is to know we can approach the living God. You are holy, just, perfect in every way. We are broken, our thoughts, our words, our desires, our practices, they all prove our depravity. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Fairness and justice scream for our condemnation. They demand that we be banished forever from your presence. But you, because of your great love, offer us forgiveness. It's in your incredible wisdom you have made a path for our justification. All without compromising your righteousness. I pray, I pray that every soul that is gathered here today will encounter only you. May every word that is uttered be your word, your truth. May every distraction, whether it be in thought, in activity, may they all be suspended. May you have our undivided attention. Speak to us, we pray, that you might confront us, conform us, comfort us, all for your glory. Lord, we are often prone to flee to our own thoughts and understandings. Free us from our predispositions. And let us hear and obey only you. Give us faith in these moments to trust only you. Believe only you. I pray for the soul that is here this morning that does not know you in a personal way. I pray that even now your spirit is drawing them unto yourself. May today be the day of salvation. May today be the day where your gift of faith and repentance crashes in upon their heart and changes them forever. May today be the day that they put off all resistance and fall onto you. Lord, bless this church. The enemy is angered always by the things that you do particularly when it seems to affect your church. He is relentless. He is cunning. He is attempting to cause and create unrest and anxiety in our lives. We pray that you might guard this body, that you might guard these people, that you will protect this congregation, that you will fill us with courage and passion for the gospel that we may trust you with everything. May we exist always for your glory and only for your glory. And we offer this prayer today in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the most prolific Christian songwriters was Fanny Crosby. Fanny was uh, six weeks old when, because of a medical miscalculation, lost her sight as an infant. So she grew up blind, but yet she was able to visualize the beauty of God's blessings through Christ in an incredible way. As a result, it's been noted that in many of her hymns, 
this visually impaired young lady spoke about sight as evidenced in the following lyrical examples. From Blessed Assurance, she says, Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. From Blessed Assurance, watching and waiting, looking above. From In the Cross, she writes, Near the cross I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting, ever. And from God to God be the glory, she writes, But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. It's incredible to think that God would take someone who had no physical sight and use her to challenge us in our spiritual sight, our spiritual vision of eternal things. Paul knew about blindness. The Scripture records that he was blinded on the way to Damascus as the Lord encountered him and converted him from his hunting and persecuting Christians, making him a follower of Christ. Before that encounter, he was consumed with spiritual blindness that's even more debilitating than physical blindness. And Paul never got over what God did in him and for him and certainly through him. It echoes in this letter to the Ephesians, particularly in these early verses. He seems to be consumed with the praise of God's glory. This morning I want us to take verses 5 and 6, and we're going to make our way through that, as Paul is unpacking this praying unto the Lord. We're going to take phrases and kind of break them down and see how to understand them, and I hope that this will fuel, cultivate, encourage your own worship for the Lord. Just before the, first, the fifth verse begins, he says, in love. Now there's two ways of looking at this verse. Some people attach it to the previous statement where it says that we were made, uh, or being made holy and blameless before Him in love. So the in love kind of applies to those of us who are in Christ. Uh, the ESV translations, some of the more modern translations, link the in love to what comes after, where it's describing God. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Neither are wrong. Neither are wrong. Personally, I like the way that the ESV has done it. I think the in love seems to go better with what follows. In love, God predestined us to adoption. In love, God predestined us for adoption. You see, the first statement is more forensic. It's more legal speaking. It, apply, it looks more to our justification from God, the judge, the holy judge, making us holy and blameless. But in this next phrase, we see the Father. God the Father. We see the family aspect of it. And so it seems fitting to me that he would say, in love, this Father has predestined us to be adopted into his family. And so I want to talk for just a few moments this morning about some of these phrases. And we're going to begin with this first one, in love. What is 
love. It's certainly a word that's familiar to all of us. Our culture, our society, I think, very often takes a very flippant, even a careless way with this term. It becomes a synonym for physical intimacy. It is often used to describe a temporal infatuation or a mere attraction. We, you know, you know if you send someone a, uh, a message via social tech, technology, social media, and if they don't give you a heart emoji, you all get offended, don't you? You didn't love it? What? What's the problem? Well, I just liked it. So we, as a, as a society, as a culture, we've kind of diminished, I think, what love truly is in many ways. Love is not shallow. Love is not superficial. It's not a helpless sensation of desire or emotion. We talk about falling in love or falling out of love. But that's not an accurate description, is it? Love is more intentional. Love is more decisive. The Bible helps us understand it best, I think. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8 says this. Listen carefully. You'll never find a better definition for love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with what? With the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love. Romans 5.8 says that God shows His love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ Jesus came and died for us. That He became the substitutionary Lamb to die for our sin on the cross that we might live. In John 15.13, Jesus said, No greater love is there than a man would lay down his life for his friends. No greater love. In other words, what he was about to do, laying down his life for those who make up his elect, there is no greater love than that. Jeremiah 31.3, God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Speaking about his people. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Love translates into faithfulness. The danger for us is that far too often we project our shallow and superficial ideas of love onto God. We think God's love, we think about God's love in the terms of human love or the way we describe human love. His love is infinite. His love is rich. His love is authentic. It's unending. It's not fickle. It's not circumstantial. It's not conditional. It's not careless. It's not fake. It doesn't need an emoji to communicate it. 1 John 3, 1 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. You hear John? John says, look and behold at the love God has demonstrated to us that He has made us His children. This circles back to John 15, 13, doesn't it? No greater love, no greater love is available. No greater love is possible. It is lavish. It is consuming. It's breathtaking. In love, he says. I love that as a qualifier for what follows after. In love, because of this great love, this ocean upon ocean upon ocean in infinite order of love in this love in this love he that is God predestined us for adoption predestined us and we discussed election last week pretty extensively I told you then that election and predestination are not synonyms They have a lot of common ground. There is overlap, but they're not synonyms, though many treat them as such. Election has to do with God's people. God's people, those whom God has known, has determined that He will redeem, that He has elected out of all humanity, these many God has chosen unto Himself. So it pertains to God's people. God's predestination speaks to God's purposes God's plans so it's broader you see election is certainly a part of it but predestination is this is what God has predetermined will take place this is the stream of God's will the river of God's will and all that is contained within it elections about who predestinations about what now there are many mischaracterizations abounding about both And I would encourage you not to fall into the trap of being swept into those eddies off to the side where those mischaracterizations began to dominate your thinking in an unhealthy way. But go into God's Word and study what He has shown us. Now, we've said last week, there's going to be a certain level of mystery in almost anything God does. His ways and thoughts are higher and greater than ours. We can't know everything. That's part of our problem is that we fall into fear sometimes over these things because we're uncomfortable with the loss of control. Now, I will say this. As human beings, control is an illusion, right? We are not in control. God is in control. He is sovereign. We're not. We can't control anything. You can't control whether your heart beats in the next minute or not. You can't really control whether you breathe or not in the next minute. You may suppress breathing for a time, but you can't really control it. We have trouble controlling our thoughts. We have uh, trouble controlling our emotions. Control is more of an illusion in human respects. God is the one who's in control. And election and predestination are glorious blessings for those of us who are called to His purposes and seek to love Him As He has loved us. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he spends the rest of this passage, this entire passage, unpacking these. What are these spiritual blessings? What are these great blessings that He has provided for us, that He blesses us with? And just to name some of them, He says election, He says predestination, adoption, redemption, wisdom. All these are the things, these are the blessings that come from the heavenly realms that apply to those who are in Christ. What a glorious, glorious thought. They're great blessings for us in Christ. And predestination means that God has determined beforehand to give these to His children. It's part of His plan. Lorraine Boatner said this. He said, It is unthinkable that a God of infinite wisdom and power would create a world without without a definite plan for the world. And because God is thus infinite, His plan must extend to every detail of the world's existence. If we could see the world in all its relations, past, present, and future, we would see that it is following a predetermined course with exact precision. All we have to do is look at creation itself and know that God is an exact and precise God, right? When He spoke all creation into being, who knew at that moment that the worlds, the planets, the stars, they would all function in concert in perfect rhythm and precision? Now, why do we think that a God, vast and big as He is, involved in every aspect of creation, would spend so much time making sure the planets would move in such concert and rhythm and precision with one another? Why do we think that He then would just throw human beings onto this earth and say, "Eh, whatever happens, happens? That doesn't work, does it? It doesn't have any logical bearing whatsoever, nor do you find it in the truth. He says, in fact, that he sustains creation by his word. He's involved, he's engaged, and he has a precise plan. Now, Paul's writing here to the Gentiles. The Jews believed they had this special spot, that they were next and dear to God's heart, which I won't argue with that. They were His chosen nation. But Paul is pushing back. Paul is attacking this idea somewhat because the Gentiles could be tempted to believe that they were second-class citizens. Second-class citizens. You know, well, the Jews are God's special beings, and... You know, we're just kind of the, dare I say, stepchildren? Paul's pushing back. He's making the case for Gentiles as chosen by God in the same fashion. You too are chosen, elect by God. It began with Abraham, yes. It continued with the Hebrews, yes. But he said he was doing this through Abraham and through the Hebrews, what? To bless all nations, all tribes, all tongues. And we see that fleshed out and fulfilled in the book of Revelation. When all tribes and tongues gather around the throne, praising what? Their heavenly Father. God. The one who chose who made us sons. He has predestined us for what? For adoption. 
This is the best part. I love this part. I'm so glad we sang those songs today about adoption. Thank you, guys. About adoption. J.I. Packer said this. He said, if I were asked to focus the New Testament in three words, in other words, if I were to summarize the message of the New Testament in three words, it would be this. Adoption through propitiation. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Adoption through propitiation. We are adopted into God's family through satisfying the judgment, the condemnation that belonged to all of us by Christ Jesus. Jewish culture didn't practice adoption. They had another system, if you remember, that if uh, a child was orphaned or a wife was widowed, what? The rest of the family picked up the responsibility. Brothers would pick up that responsibility. They would marry a widow in order to perpetuate a family for their brother. And the same thing would happen with children. So adoption wasn't a Jewish concept. Paul picked this up most likely from his Roman roots. The Romans were involved in adoption. Well-to-do families without children desired heirs. And so they would adopt someone. Now, here's the catch. In our society, adoption's pretty common. It's something we all celebrate. It's good for the children. It's good for society. But here's the thing. We look to adopt usually when someone is an infant, a baby. We, we work out those details ahead of time, and we raise that baby from day one as our own. But the Romans, what they did was they would watch. They adopted adults. Look, if, if I'm a wealthy, well-to-do person and I have an estate, I have a family name, and I want to adopt an heir. I want to wait and make sure I find someone of character. I want to make sure that I have seen someone who has proven himself to be able to carry on the family name and to manage the estate in a way that's comfortable, that I'm comfortable with. That was the culture. But what Paul says is that that's not what takes place with God. God adopts. Yes, He's looking for heirs. But He calls us in chapter 2 sons of disobedience. Children of wrath. We have no reputation. Not a good one. (laughs) the The only thing we've proven is our depravity. And yet God, God... This holy, divine God, this Father, has decided to adopt a bunch of ragtag, depraved sons and make us heirs. Now, let's get your, let your mind get around that. I know we have a tendency to think higher of ourselves than we should. That's why it's good to remind ourselves that the only thing we bring to this relationship with God is our sin, our disobedience our rebellion. So Paul mentions this concept three times in text. If you want to take, take your Bibles and turn back, hold your place there where we are, turn back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And let's look at verse 14 and following. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the Spirit of God is within these people, making them sons of God. They're led by the Spirit. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, back into the way you conducted yourself before, but you have received the spirit of adoption, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. Hmm. Now turn over to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. Verse 1. Galatians 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Listen so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So through Christ, we are adopted. We become God's sons. Being completely conformed to the likeness of God's Son is something that we all look forward to. It's in the future, although now that transformation is underway. The legalities, the paperwork, has already been taken care of. As the Spirit moves in, you have been made in name sons of God. And now He is helping us become conformed to the image that's suitable and pleasing and right for the family reputation, which is holiness and righteousness and joy. Spiritual adoption, much more power than physical adoption, right? Being adopted among many brothers is something that we have now. And immediately upon becoming a Christian, we have an intimacy of this relationship. You have an unconditional relationship with God. You become wealthy because everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished is transferred to your account. You become beautiful and spiritually rich in Him. Now, I have to say something about this. Some people are probably put off by the language that, uh, of adoption because it seems to be gender insensitive. That's important, I know, in our culture today. They might argue, wouldn't it be better to say that we become sons and daughters of God? Maybe. But to do that, you miss the point of what Paul's trying to say. I read about a woman uh, recently who I think can help us understand this a little better. She was raised in a non-Western family from a very traditional culture there was only one son in the family and it was understood in her culture that he would receive most of the family's provisions and honor in essence they said he's the son you're just a girl that's just the way it is and one day 
She was studying a passage on adoption in Paul's writings, and she suddenly realized that the apostle was making a revolutionary claim. He wasn't leaning in to gender insensitive, insensitivity. Paul lived in a traditional culture just like she did. He was living in a place where daughters were considered second-class citizens. Paul said out of his own traditional culture that we are all sons in Christ. He was saying that there is no second-class citizen in God's family. When you give your life to Christ and become a Christian, you receive all the benefits of an only son. In fact, the same benefits as Christ Himself. We are fellow heirs, the Scripture says, with Him. Our adoption means we are loved as Christ is loved. Now, if we were a Pentecostal church, several of you would be running the aisles right now because that's pretty exciting news. Well, we're not, and that's okay. We are honored as, like, as, as Christ is honored, every one of us. Why? Because we have His righteousness. We have His righteousness set upon us. And so, therefore, God treats us in the same way that He treats Christ. Your circumstances cannot hinder or threaten that promise. In fact, your bad circumstances will only help you understand and even claim the beauty of that promise more. And the more you live out who you are in Christ, the more you become like Him in reality. Paul's not promising you a better life circumstance. He's promising you a far better life. He's promising you a life of greatness, a life of joy, a life of humility, a life of nobility, a life that goes on forever. Adoption, you see, is our greatest privilege in the gospel. Now be careful. Some would push back, and rightfully so, and say, well, what about justification? I mean, how can you put that above? Listen, justification is the primary blessing. It's what we need in order to have a relationship with God. Everything else, including adoption, rests on our justification. But here, again, listen to J.I. Packer. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea. It is a matter of law. You are declared righteous because Christ went to the cross and satisfied the debt that we owed for our sin. We are declared righteous by God when we put our faith and trust in Christ's atoning work. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love. In love, God has adopted us to Himself. And God Himself is our Father. Closeness, intimacy, fellowship, love, generosity. The list goes on and on. This is what it means to be a child of this Heavenly Father. According to the purpose of His will. This has always been God's plan, His will. Predetermined will. We may not understand everything regarding the details of how, but we certainly can grasp that God's plan is to have many sons. 
many sons. The hows attached to this incredible plan all glorify Him. So when we don't understand, we can rest, we can lean into His character of knowing that He makes no mistakes and that He's always working for His glory and our good. To the praise of His glorious grace. Three times in this text, in these first 14 verses, Paul circles back to this, to the praise of His glory. Hence, the theme of this refrain, the theme of this, this praise offering that He's giving. He's overcome with what God has done for Him. For Him. A one who was a Jew among Jews, trained to be a Pharisee, had all of these things that he'd engaged in, training and educating and growing and learning, all to be a good follower of God, and he saw all of that wrecked, shipwrecked, realizing that it was only exalting himself. And that trust in Christ is what he needed to change him from a blind, spiritually blind person into a son of God, to the praise of God's glorious grace. In our limited minds, we struggle with the house of what God is doing. We think it makes more sense that God prevents sin and brokenness and all of this that we see around us. Did God make a mistake? Or is God just now reacting to the mistakes of human beings? Why would He allow these things to occur? Why allow people to sin and perish? Why such an elaborate and grueling path to redemption? Our sense of fairness and logic haunt us. But we're looking at it from a human perspective and only a human perspective. And I might say a human perspective that is influenced and clouded by sin and brokenness. Yet God is absolutely sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing. We know this is true. We know it intellectually. We know God makes no mistakes, and at some point we must rest in what we know about God. James Anderson said this. He said, A world with no fall and no salvation is altogether less God-glorifying than a world with a tragic fall, but also a wondrous salvation. I'll read it again. A world with no fall and no salvation is altogether less God-glorifying than a world with a tragic fall, but also a wondrous salvation. I had a seminary professor take issue with me on this statement, and he asked me to defend it. I said, well, I could rattle on, you know, for days and offer this great argument, right? I really couldn't. I said, I have a very simple response. And he said, okay, I'm anxious to hear it. And I said, my response is because this is how God did it. And his character assures me that I can rest in that. Because this is the way God chose to do it, then it must be so. It's the ultimate way for His glory to be manifested as He has chosen through all creation for all time. If there was a better way to do it, God would have chosen that. But He didn't. This is the one He chose. He can do anything He wants that does not compromise His deity. 
He predetermined this path and means to get us to Revelation 21 and 22. From Eden to Eden. God predetermined this would be the path. That He created Eden. Eden was going to fall. Sin would enter the world and we end up with a broken world. And everywhere we look today we see the evidence, the proof of that. But God, because He's got this predetermined plan, and He is working this plan out to perfection, precision, He is working toward that plan where Eden is restored in Revelation 21 and 22, where we gather around Him not needing any more buildings or edifices of any kind or any more practices of religion, where we gather around the throne in all tribes and nations and tongues and colors and genders, and we praise our Father. For all eternity, forever and ever and ever. I can't wait. Three times in this passage, Paul states this important thing. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the spiritual realm. As fellow heirs with Jesus, all His resources are ours in Him to the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. He's given us election. He's given us adoption. He's given us wisdom. He has lavished upon us all these things to the praise of His glory, for the expression of His glory, to display His glory that others may see and become curious and be drawn to the Father, the same Father that you and I have fled to. What does your life say about Him today? Are you in Christ? Have you believed the gospel, repented of your sin, and put your trust and hope in Christ and only in Christ? Are you here today expressing praise for His glory? Are you actively and intentionally praising and worshiping? Do you live daily for His honor, obey Him, showing that He is Lord and King of your life? You have every spiritual blessing. <laughs> so often we find ourselves moaning and groaning and moping, don't we? And he says, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Rejoice and thrive in Him. Are you unsure about your relationship with Christ today? Are you living for self, pursuing the world and its many idols? Has God made you uncomfortable today in any way? That could very well be the convicting work of the Spirit. Don't resist Him. Believe His truth. Confess your sin. Turn to Christ. The mercy seat is there. You say, well, how do I know if I'm elect? Look, <laughs> if you want to turn to Christ, turn to Christ. God will not turn you away. You don't have to worry about who's got the E tattooed on their forehead and who doesn't. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Church, we belong to Him. He's chosen us out of diverse backgrounds and experiences. He's fulfilling His plan to unite all things in Him. This church has become a testimony of God's promise to unite all things in fullness 
both things in heaven and things on earth. Be on guard. Satan's not happy with that. Satan much prefers to see the splintering and the factionalism and the peeling off and the breaking and the tearing of taking one body and ripping it into many pieces. God has given you a gift. Defend it. Fight for it. Pray for it. Guard the unity that God has given. For the praise of His glory. For the praise of His glory. We worship Him in song and in word and everything we do testifies of His greatness and His glory. So it is written, let it be evidenced in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for who You are. What an incredible, what an incredible gospel that is ours. I'm so grateful for Your work and ministry in and through this wonderful apostle who was a man like any of us in this room today with his faults and flaws, and yet you gave him such a view of your glories. And I pray that those views might be transferred through his words to our hearts and that you might stir us up, Lord, for the praise of your glory in all things, in all ways, not for one day or two, but, Lord, for each and every day of our lives, for all of eternity. This stretches throughout eternity. Make it so. Lord, draw the lost to Yourself today. Convict the redeemed to praise You today in a way that's honorable. Guard and protect and nurture the unity that's present in this church that we might be truly the city on a hill in this community for your glory and your praise. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing this love that sits the Son so that we might be adopted into the
Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.